the challenge, the opportunity to connect. The 1960s, a time of imagination and change, a time of anger and fear. The 1960s, a program called Challenge. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Looked at our connections, our divisions, through the lens of faith. Nearly 60 years later, during these challenging times, we'll take a new look at our divisions, our connections, in a new program called Challenge 2.0. The evangelical fundamentalist movement has seemed to be a monolith of Christians embracing conservative politics. But news and social media sources have increasingly been documenting rifts in the movement. Exvangelical and post-evangelical are both growing Facebook pages, friended by those disillusioned by what they term extreme right-wing politics. One of our guests today, a former Southern Baptist minister, never thought those terms would apply to him. But that was before he met a young Muslim boy in a North Carolina coffee shop. The gentleman I just spoke of is sitting immediately to my right, and that is Dr. Jeff Burns, who is visiting us from North Carolina. Welcome, Jeff, and from an organization known as Pathways to Peace. And we'll be hearing much more of that. And if you've watched these programs at all frequently, you're very familiar with the lady who's gracing us right now, and that is Anila Afzali from MAPS Amen, Muslim Association of Puget Sound and American Muslim Empowerment Network. Anila, thank you so much for coming back again. Thank you for having us. Well, it's a delight. And what I'd like to do is, I gave an allusion to your story in the introduction, Jeff. What I'd like to do is go back 16 plus years ago. At that time, having the conversation that you and Anila are about to have yeah. would have been, I think it's fair to say, inconceivable. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a sense of what emotional, what intellectual place you were in at that time? Yes, I can. I would say emotionally, I was a burnout um, fundamentalist pastor, <laughs> even though so, I was burnt out. I had been a pastor for 18 years. Twelve of those were, I was a Southern Baptist minister, mm -hmm. and uh, I was a graduate of Liberty University, familiar with Liberty University, and in fact, Jerry Falwell Jr. lived across the hall from me. We were 18-year-old, you know, boys then, and um, so pastored Baptist churches for 12, 12 years, then mm -hmm. seven years, interdenominational churches. Um, but dealt with uh, the racial issue was very big, mm -hmm. big struggle. Found out later that one of the churches that I had pastored, half my leadership had been in the Ku Klux Klan at one time. So we spent so much energy dealing with that issue, and I was burnt out. You know, I was burnt out. And um, the interdenominational church was a, was a good experience. That was a good experience. But I got tired of convincing people to love their neighbor. <laughs> I mean, really, bottom line, don't get me wrong, there were some wonderful people, and I had right. some wonderful parishes that I, that I led. But I was burnt out by this, by this time, and so I quit. I left. I said, I can't do this anymore. I, um, I didn't sign up for this. I thought we were following Jesus, and little did I know that even though I had fought the racial battle, I was a racist in my heart. My wife mm -hmm. pointed out later towards Muslims. <laughs> I somehow, it's amazing how we can compartmentalize. And so intellectually, I was a part of this movement called Christian Zionism. Are you familiar with that term, Christian Zionism? Yeah, I know you are familiar with it. For our audience. And what, so when I was a Baptist and interdenominational, we, um, 
we all were Christian Zionists, mm -hmm. the ideology, and it, we got it from our fundamentalist roots. Basically, Christian Zionism says that Jesus can't come back until all the lands that Israel once had mm -hmm. are reestablished, you know, and but primarily they focus on the West Bank and the Gaza. So all the Palestinians and, uh, have to leave, then Jesus can come back and the, 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 the kingdom will come. And, and so we bought into that ideology. Mm -hmm intellectually, but the problem with that ideology is that if you just look at the Old Testament, that land goes all the way to Jordan, all the land they're supposed to have, right. but, but in the West, we were thinking West Bank and Gaza, West Bank and mm -hmm. Gaza. So I, there was no space in my heart intellectually to, uh, to love Jews and to love Muslims. Do you, you see what I mean? It created a, a real conflict. Now I tell people, because I get accused of being uh, anti-Semitic now, which I'm not, I love Jewish people. I've spoken in synagogues, and I have many Jewish friends, but I just made room in my heart to love Muslims. Mm -hmm. But back then, I was in that space of Christian Zionism, fundamentalism, but I was burnt out. So I was a prime candidate <laughs> for God to show up. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that story. Anila, you've heard countless stories uh, similar to the one that Jeff just related of where he was 16 years ago. Is there a common denominator to each of those stories? Yeah, oftentimes what it involves is people who don't know their Muslim neighbors, mm -hmm. right? They have no personal connections, right. they don't have the personal stories, they don't know much about Islam. That's what studies show us, that the majority of our fellow Americans do not know Muslims personally yeah. mm -hmm. and do not know much about Islam. And that is a recipe for disaster mm -hmm. when you have certain groups and individuals who are promoting a very divisive sort of hateful message, right. a message of fear, and often used as propaganda even, uh, that creates this divide between we the people. So Muslims in this narrative are treated as the other. Mm -hmm. And that lends itself to fear and sort of concern and that distance that does not allow people to even have these kinds of personal interactions right. that would otherwise counter the misinformation that people yeah. are often fed. So that seems to be the common denominator is that lack of connection and then a little bit of sort of a lack of knowledge mm -hmm. about the religion, the faith, or the mm -hmm. people. Exactly. Those two together, uh, and, and an unwillingness to change, right. an unwillingness to sort of meet people or have their viewpoints uh, challenged in any way. Right. And I've seen it with many people. Uh, Dr. Jeff Burns is one example, but I've encountered so many people in the work that I do and also others that I've read about across our country who were in a place of hate, yeah. in a place of fear, in a place of concern. And it was a personal connection, whether mm -hmm. it's a five-year-old child, whether it's another human mm -hmm. being, whatever it is, that one personal connection can create a tr powerful transformation it can have that kind of powerful yeah. transformative impact. And you mentioned that impact of an encounter, and that's yes. going to lead us into the next story. Yeah. Jeff, your mindset, as we know now, obviously mm -hmm. changed, and a change from what I understand because of an encounter with a very young lad, and we're going to love this in the Seattle area, in yeah. a Starbucks coffee shop, yeah. albeit in uh, North Carolina. Yeah. Tell us about that encounter. Take us back then and explore that. Well, it's interesting. When I left the, the pastoral ministry, in 2004, mm -hmm. I was like, what am I going to do now with my life? I've mm -hmm. got all my education and I've done all this for 18 years. And, and I got an email in 2004. This is just three years after 9-11. Yeah, three years mm -hmm. after 9-11. And I was invited to be a part of a class for three months on Islam. And they were going to bring in Muslim speakers, Christian speakers. They're going to have everything, missionaries, non-missionaries. I mean, just anybody that's had some connection with Islam. Right. And to, to grow. I had books for us to read and to, to and you read Muslim books, Christian books. And I said, I'm embarrassed to say it now, but I said it'll be a cold day in hell before I go spend three months studying about Islam. I know everything I need to know. 
and uh, they kept writing me, we need you to come, you are an influential pastor in our area, and we want you to come and, and be a part of this. And I said, no, I'm not coming. I, I, don't, want, I don't want anything to do with this. And my wife, she's a very straightforward person, wonderful person, Oceana, she said, you know, you fought the racial battle in the South, but when it comes to Muslims, mm-hmm. you're a racist in your heart. Oh, I was so offended. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't sleep over that, you know. And I said, well, I'll take that class. When Jesus Christ appears at the foot of my bed and asks me to take it, I'll take it. But I want to see his ID for confirmation. So I was being a smart butt. I mean, right. so I was a hard case is what I'm trying to say. And so finally I thought, well, all right, I don't want to look like I'm not open. So I took the class. And I all of a sudden realized, wow, Islam is not a monolithic mm-hmm. thing. Well, neither is evangelicalism. It's easy to all of us to, right. to think monolithically. It's a lot of diverse. I thought, well, yeah, Islam is very diverse. You got Sufis, you got Sunni, you got Shia, you've got all this. I mean, it's as diverse as you know Christianity. And I thought, okay, well, I'm a little more enlightened, and um, but this is as far as it goes. I, I'm not going because I, I, I hated Muslims. And my, I would have never said that out loud because Christians are not supposed to hate anybody. But in my heart, I just, you know, and I said, but this is as far as it goes. And they said, well, in order to get credit for this class, you have to go make friends with a Muslim and go down into the mosque with a group to one of the dawah or, you know, the outreach presentations. And I was like, oh, God, no. I would rather have a colonoscopy. I don't want to do this. Lord, what? <laughs> That's a bit extreme. It was. I was like, oh, oh, I just, this is, no, no. Not. And it's like God was just pushing me towards way outside my comfort zone. But I tell people coming from a Southern Baptist background, I wanted to get my certificate. They seem to get credit. I always read the certificate. So to make a long story short, there's a, a longer, long story. I was uh, halfway through the class. I was sitting at a Starbucks on Creedmoor Road in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I was wrestling. I don't know if you've ever had something in your life that keeps you awake at night, mm-hmm. your stomachs. And this is one of those things. I, mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there at Starbucks and I said, I had the, we had the class manual open and, and like the hijab. I mean, now it's a beautiful thing. But then I'm like, I, I, what did you do with this? And, and the men with, uh, with the beards and the skull cap. And I said, Lord, look at me. I'm a southern, you know, guy. And I said, the bridge between Islam and Christianity is so large. How do you, this can, I, I said, surely you're not asking me to, to do something about this. <laughs> that thought hit me. Thought, oh, no, surely this struggle is not about that. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna put God on the te- test, God, so to speak. So I just looked around, made sure nobody was watching me, and I just shot up a prayer. I had my cappuccino on my hand, and I said, okay, God. And this is how simple the prayer was. Here's the deal: if you're calling me to build bridges of love and peace to uh, to the house of Ishmael, to the to the Muslim community. You're going to have to give me a sign so clear I'll never, ever, 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 ever doubt it. And I thought, oh, I'm off the hook. Because Baptists don't believe in signs. <laughs> I thought, so I, went, I felt great. I went back to the manual and I was having this wonderful experience. And then this uh, next thing I know, this little boy standing right next to my table. I'm not kidding. A minute didn't pass. And God not, knew the way that my heart was through a child. Because we love children. My wife and I always loved children. Every ministry we were in, we poured everything into children. And... Um, so he was standing there, and I had these magic markers out. And the kids would come over all the time wanting one of the magic markers. And he said, sir, I'd like to borrow one of your magic markers. And I said, sure, take, the, take one. He goes, I would like to. I said, take the blue one. He goes, no, I prefer the orange one. And I thought he would go on his way. Now, I had just prayed for a sign, right? And uh, next thing you know, he pulls over up a chair in a Starbucks. And you know how the little round tables mm-hmm. are. And uh, he, put his, he got, got on his knees. He was so little. And he had his 
elbows on the table. He takes the lid off and he looks me square in the eye and he says, sir, my name is Omar and I'm five years old and I'm here to teach you Arabic. <laughs> and then he started, he reached over and ripped out a piece of paper out of my notebook and started saying the Arabic alphabet out real, as loud as he could. I mean, just he was so excited and I was like, oh, what is going on? And it was almost like God was whispering to my heart saying, you didn't think I could do that, did you? Yeah. And I, I thought I was gonna pass out. I was so overwhelmed by this. And then this woman yells and says, Omar, what are you doing? Leave that poor man alone. And I said, no, no ma'am, Omar can do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> and so Omar for the next 20, 30 minutes tried to teach me Arabic. And then, of course, he's five years old. He's not a calligrapher, okay? He said, now I write it, you write, you write it. I, look, I thought, well, I, I thought it, looked at least as good as his. He's five and he goes, it's all wrong. He goes, I'm going to come around there and take your hand and guide you through this alphabet. Mm -hmm. And so Omar came over and he said, say it with me, each letter, and we wrote it out. And when we got to the end of it, all that hate and poison mm -hmm. and Islamophobia, it was gone. It was literally like God took it out of me. And I went to his mother and I said, Omar is going to be a great teacher one day. And she goes, well, we're shocked. And so why? Omar is an extremely shy child. He would never go up to a total stranger. And we've been sitting here trying to figure out what made him get up and come over to you. Well, I wasn't ready to talk about it. But right. I walked out that door that day and I said, God, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm in. Yeah. I'm willing to commit the rest of my life to this. And so that's, and after that, everything changed. So, I, you know, yeah. Powerful example of an encounter, and you've spoken of that before. Is that power of an encounter such as what Jeff experienced central to opening people to each other? Has that been your experience? My experience has been that that's the most powerful way to open people. It's not the only way, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, facts and stats and data work for some folks. Personal right. stories work yeah. for others. Uh, reading about the religion or learning yeah. about the faith works for others. Reading the Quran works for others. Mm -hmm. So there's different ways to do it, but the personal encounter is just the most profound, the most transformative. Some of the biggest changes that we've seen have been through these kinds of personal encounters. Uh, in fact, Ted Hakey Jr., who I've talked about before and I had the chance to meet in person, he was somebody who hated Muslims and even promoted violence against mm -hmm. Muslims mm -hmm. and then one day took his rifle and followed his own advice and shot into a next door mosque. Uh, and the, that mosque forgave him for what he did. Fortunately, nobody was hurt, mm -hmm. it was 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. uh, but then he went back to that mosque and he spoke with the community there. And he told them sort of his story and, and he even said something to them that still sticks to me. He said, if I had spent five minutes with you, mm -hmm. I would not have done what wow. I had done. So five minutes of that personal yep. encounter would have had all that kind of transformative impact that people would have stayed away from violence, from hate crimes, mm -hmm. from, from what this kind of fear and this yep. uh, propaganda leads people to ultimately do. Because it's really a dehumanization process mm -hmm. is what's happening is there's this whole entire dehumanization machinery that's at play against Muslims and other communities, but certainly against Muslims in our country today. Mm -hmm. And part of that dehumanization, in, in fact, is to treat Muslims as other, right. which ignores reality, which yeah. ignores factual history, which ignores our, you know, uh, African-American Muslim siblings who've been right. part of our country since the very beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, there are American Muslims who trace their, their uh, lineage here in our country back to the very founding of our country. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there were Muslim explorers even before Columbus uh, to right. what we mm -hmm. call the United States of America. Yeah. And there are estimates that with the slave trade, there were up to 30% uh, of the human beings who were enslaved from Africa having been Muslim. Yeah. So when you talk about the power of encounter and you talked about other elements too, Anila, in the 
work that you do with MAPS Amen and in a variety of different outreach roles, how have you utilized those to try to bridge some of these differences then? Yeah, part of what we try to do is get people to actually meet their Muslim neighbors mm -hmm. for this very reason. Because mm -hmm. you can have that profound uh, impact when you realize, oh, we have a lot in common. Right. We both enjoy, you know, for yeah. me, snowboarding, for yeah. instance, yeah. or whatever yeah. it may yeah. be, right? Uh -huh. You can find these yeah. commonalities, or cooking, or mm -hmm. walking, or reading, yeah. whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So those uh, opportunities for people to come together and actually meet their Muslim right. neighbors. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing is to go and talk to people about what is happening with this anti-Muslim industry. Mm -hmm. There's an entire industry that spends millions upon yeah. millions of dollars every year in order to spread this kind of fear and divisiveness mm -hmm. and divide we the people and they profit politically and financially but it hurts us mm -hmm. everyday right. people right mm -hmm. so we help people understand that and then really the 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 best way is to use videos to use stories to use mm -hmm. personal contacts mm -hmm. to use these opportunities to just help build those personal relationships yep. That's, that's what I do in the work that I've been doing awesome. for the past several years now, and I've been able to witness the direct change. Yeah. I've had people come up to me, admit to me that they feared me, that they mm -hmm. feared Muslims, mm -hmm. that they believed the misinformation, yeah. um, and admit that to me. I've had people cry to me, you know, because mm -hmm. they felt so bad that they allowed themselves to be filled with that much fi uh, fear and hate. Mm -hmm. And they've given me a hug and said that the two hours that we had that program, for instance, or whatever it could be, mm -hmm. that that changed their life. Yeah. Jeff, after your encounter with a young boy, you're finishing the coursework, I think you said that was about halfway through, uh, led you to some other encounters, but you were sort of left with one foot at least tentatively in your old background mm -hmm. uh, within evangelical movement and another foot in the Islamic community and in those Christians and other people of faith that were yeah. moving toward uh, some sort of connection. Yeah. How difficult was that to maintain, and what did it result wow. in? It was, if, if, first it was v very hard. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, because it's like, it's, like, it's like I was a newborn baby. You know what I mean, it really was. Right. My wife was, she was fine from the beginning. Um, so we started, what we did was, my wife and I started building friendships. I said, mm -hmm. we, we went to the Dawah presentation, that was part of the, the class thing we right. had to do. Went down and there was this brilliant physicist, mm -hmm. and he was teaching. And I, I was, by then, all the fear was gone. And I felt like God said, I want you to go up and become, tell him you want to become friends. <laughs> and I said, hey, I don't have any Muslim friends. <laughs> Can we be friends? Sure. And it, it began an amazing journey. So that was my start. So he became like a surrogate family member to us. And we could sit down. Once we became good friends eating together, we could talk about the hard questions. Well, right. Explain jihad to me. Explain. And he would ask me questions, explain that. And we began, you know, it, it, was, it was so powerful. Mm -hmm. It was really kind of a training ground. So I spent the first year listening just as a learner because I had been so the other way. So what happened was I wrote an article. I was asked. He asked me one day what I thought about the Prophet Muhammad. And, I, and he said, would you write an article from a Christian perspective on the Prophet Muhammad? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's gone, been published in Muslim newspapers and stuff. And he goes, he was so moved by it. And he goes, the mosque wants to know, would you, could they hand it out? Mm -hmm. And would you come to an open house to hand it? I said, sure. Man. My evangelical friends thought I was going too far. They, I was part of a network at that time of house churches and, uh, and intentional communities. And they said, you can't do this. You can't do this. And so my wife looked at me one day and she said, Jeff, you can't talk to our friends about this right now. You and I have to do this and let it grow quietly. Mm -hmm. we, not that we're hiding, but we're going to have to keep doing it and God will send others. So I went down and they handed out the article. And the Muslim leaders came up and said, you're forever in our heart what you wrote about the Prophet Muhammad. And so my wife and I were doing this. And so I stopped 
sending out e emails to my, all my church, all these people. And then one day I got this idea. I said, I was in the shower. It's funny how you get these ideas in the shower. And I felt like God wanted me to start a, a peace community. Mm -hmm. And that would just focus on loving Muslims and peacemaking. And I screened people coming in. Yeah, you really do. And it's, yeah, it's, so we started out with about 18 people. And uh, I would just start taking them to the mosque. Mm -hmm. You know, getting them. And we, I, so let's go to Friday prayer. And it had a nice cafeteria. Let's go eat. We'll have Muslims. We'll talk. Just toss, and uh, and in uh, that little community, just started loving Muslims, and and whatever you know. One guy taught ESL. He said, "I hey, this is the way I can love." Another guy said, "I like to hunt and fish." Can I, I said, "Take Muslims hunting and fishing." <laughs> it became free, and it was just amazing. Some what came out of that. Mm -hmm. And so I was asked. Uh, there's a prominent evangelical leader in the city of Raleigh. He said, "Jeff, what you're doing, I'm for it, but I can't I can't support you directly, but I can get you in front of." It front of people. Mm -hmm. He got me in front of a group of pastors one day and I told my story, what was happening. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, six or no, seven of them stayed behind. Mm -hmm. The rest of them walked out mad. Mm -hmm. And one and one of them, he's this beautiful African American man. And he uh he looked at me and said, When you first started talking, I wanted to run out of here. I said, How dare they bring this heretic and liberal in? But he said, Everything you said comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. It's out of the words of Jesus. He goes, have I become a Christian that's offended by the words of our master? Right. <laughs> and so they got behind me. But what I did was I knew they still needed some work. Mm -hmm. So we, we had a, we made every two weeks at a, in, a, in a restaurant. We called ourselves the Friends of Ishmael. Mm -hmm. And every two weeks, I kind of walked them through deconstruction. Mm -hmm. And we did this over a period of a year. It all takes time. Mm -hmm. It all takes time. And they become my greatest allies. And then their churches got involved. And then we started an internship of this. And uh, so every year we have 30 or 40 people go through this and just educating about Islam and take them to the mosque. And then we formed small groups called Communities of Reconciliation. It's gone all over the world, this little simple template that me and another guy, me and another guy created. And it changed things. Mm -hmm. It just made the biggest difference. And uh, so that's how we did it. But at the same time, we had a lot of persecution. We had this resistance. Well, and that brings up a point when we hear, we see how the evangelical community, or at least what we popularly think of it as, has taken a very large role in elections. They're typically associated with very conservative causes, very often white nationalism, uh, anti-mainstream science, climate change, to name just a couple of things. Is that accurate? Is the reality more nuanced? And to the degree that it is accurate, do you see evidence of change? Well, yeah, that's a very good question. And I always try to be careful about making things black and white, but it is a reality that um, the present political climate we have now would not be in existence without the evangelical community. Mm -hmm. And coming from a fundamentalist background, uh, which I'm no longer a part of the fundamentalist back or background, of course, um, I went to Liberty University. I would have to say there is a very clear uh, buy-in agenda. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's one, it's homophobic. We had, we had five things that we were taught. Well, I, I still have, I found my old moral majority card the other day from the 80s. <laughs> it's when the movement began. You know, we had to stop the, the, uh, the, the militant homosexual movement. Mm -hmm. uh, um, uh, protect Israel, that was the other one. National security, which now, back then didn't, but now involves Muslims, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So that's where they fall in. Uh, abortion, prevent abortion, but it's okay to carpet bomb <laughs> a city if it's, you know what I mean, kill babies already inside and outside the womb. There's a schizophrenia mm -hmm. there. And the climate change issue, 
they don't want to acknowledge, a lot of them do not want to acknowledge climate change, and here's why. They'll say, well, the Earth's always got warmer and colder, and that part's true. I mean, uh, the North Carolina coast 8,000 years ago was 60, 70 miles out you mm -hmm. know, further. But there's natural, what we call, that part's true. But, to, but we are accelerating it. You know, right. we're definite the carbon footprint is, is, is creating a problem. They don't want to acknowledge that because there's an ideology behind that. Well, the world's going to be destroyed anyway, so why should, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, it's dualistic. We're, we're, I'm separate. I have this right sense of beliefs. You're in. Mm -hmm. I'm in. You're out. Uh, here's how the world is. And um, Jesus is going to straighten it out, so why save it? You know, it's all going to burn. But on the other side, you've got, a, uh, I call them progressive evangelicals. And they were a younger group coming up, the millennials, uh, mm -hmm. under 50, a lot of them. They're coming up, and they're not buying into the party line, you see. So I think, I don't know what's going to be created from them. It might even be a whole other, you know, it's like in Islam. You know what I'm saying? There's the extremes, and then there's this. And then, uh, you, and then you begin to see this, these beautiful, beautiful things coming up that uh, are going to, I think are going to make a difference. But right now, it's scary. Mm -hmm. It really is, yeah. Anila, I know that you've had connections with those of conservative faith backgrounds or conservative politics. When you make connections in those communities or with those communities, have you found some common elements that you think might be helpful to those trying to make those connections that you might suggest as uh, examples? Yeah, what I try to focus on in those communities in particular, sort of more conservative con communities, is the importance that they're not doing me a favor. They're not doing this for the sake of Muslims necessarily, although right. that's great if they did it for that reason, but they don't have to go out there and try to help a community that they don't know or necessarily want mm -hmm. to know. What I try to really emphasize to them is do what your faith commands you to do. Right, you mentioned the, serm mm -hmm. uh, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. Right. Examples of that, so using their own tradition, do what you're doing because it's what your faith commands you commands to do. It's what our shared American values command us right. to do. We have to stand for religious freedom for all. That's a core value right. that we should share because mm -hmm. when we ensure my religious freedom, mm -hmm. it also right. supports your religious freedom. What's well, my hope that as people have watched and listened to both of you, that they'll take this message to heart. And I think the other message that change is possible. Our hearts can change, our behavior can change, and I thank Absolutely. you both for being such a prime example of that mm -hmm. and for joining us. And I know North Carolina is a long distance away from <laughs> Seattle. You come back, I hope you'll be a guest and join I'll us again honored. sometime. I would be honored to come. And Anila, you know that invitation is always open to you as well. Thank, thank you, you for so always much. having us on. Appreciate Absolutely. it. It's an honor. Thank you so much for joining us on this edition of Challenge 2.0. We hope you'll join us again next week. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this program, please give us five stars and leave a review. If you can also tell one friend about the show, that would be great. You can find us on social media at Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find out more and financially support the show at pathstounderstanding.org. The program is hosted by executive producer Jeff Renner, produced by Tom Butterworth and John Sharifi. Cameras and audio by Rich McAdams, Tom Butterworth, and Dean Cuccio. Ian Olson is the production assistant.